You're listening to Friendlier, the podcast for friends who love to talk, read, and eat. I'm Abby. And I'm Sarah. Today, we're going to talk about our choices around stay-at-home parenting. But first, let's catch up on life lately. What's new with you, Abby? Folks might have seen on my Instagram a few months ago that I got a Buy Nothing sandbox, which I was very excited about for Plum. And I was inspired by Young House Love because instead of doing a sandbox for their daughter, they did a rock box. So they got the little pebbles mm-hmm. and then put them in, um, which is appealing because Plum loves the sandbox, but she always comes home from school covered in sand. And I just was not excited about that in my house. Mm-hmm. So the rock box seemed like a really good compromise. But turns out that, number one, it takes a lot of rocks to fill a sandbox like that. Hmm. So I found this place close by our house where you can shovel your own rocks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but getting them into the car was sort of a problem. So they were so kind and they were like, yeah, we have a shovel you can use. So what I did was I took Andrew's brewing buckets mm-hmm. and then I put them in the trunk of our car. And while Plum played in the rock pile, I shoveled the rocks straight from the rock pile into the buckets. So I never had to lift them. Mm. But then I got them home. Yeah. And they were so (laughs) heavy. Doesn't work both ways. (laughs) So that what I did was I scooped the rocks into canvas grocery bags and brought them in like a bag at a time. (laughs) (laughs) And then what I realized as Plum was playing in the rocks as I was shoveling them into the car at the place is that they were completely filthy. Yes. There's a dust coating them. Yes, exactly. So... (laughs) In order to not put that in the sandbox, I then had to wash all the rocks. <laughs> mm. So this buy nothing sandbox slash rock box that I was really excited about turned into days of work. <laughs> but now it's done. It's super fun. Yeah. Hopefully that time comes back to you in independent play. Yes. In the months to come. That's my hope. We did have a slight snafu the other day in that Plum swallowed a rock. <laughs> Mm. And then threw it right back up because she got freaked out because I told her (laughs) that we weren't going (laughs) to see it for a while. (laughs) And she's a pukey kid anyway, so it wasn't really a surprise (laughs) that she did that. I was going to say, I'm pretty impressed if she can vomit on command that way. Now that she's eaten one rock and then had the unpleasant experience of throwing it right back up again, Mm -hmm. she says, rocks are not for eating. (laughs) Well, I had a philosophy when HP was little, and one of the playgrounds we went to had rocks instead of mulch or something else. Uh And you always see parents constantly trying to pull the rocks out of the kids' mouths and telling them not to eat them. And I had this idea that he won't actually swallow them, (laughs) that he'll just put them in and realize they're gross and spit them back out. I'm sure any parent listening knows false, (laughs) as we discovered day later in his diaper when several rocks came out. Oh my gosh. From then on, I was more vigilant in making sure that he did not put rocks into his mouth. It's a lesson learned all around. Turns out two-year-olds don't know what's best for them. (laughs) Sarah, what's new with you? I am excited to report that our bathroom is done. Yay! Neil would quibble with this and say it's almost done because we have a couple touch-up paint spots but by the time this airs it will for sure be done (laughs) (laughs) but we have a functioning toilet which means we are now a two-toilet family which we have not been since 
2017. Oh my gosh. Yes. Congratulations. That is awesome. And it looks amazing. I'm really happy with it. And just as I predicted a few months ago, all the horror of the process is already fading from my memory as (laughs) I enjoy our new bathroom. Lovely. And now I'm excited to work on our half bath. I think we need a couple month break with zero house projects before we're ready to jump into a new one. Yeah. Let's move on to what we've been reading. What is your latest read, Abby? I just finished Oceanic by Amy Nizikamatatil. And this is a poetry collection that I first heard about from Roxanne Gay on Goodreads. Mm. And she focuses on the natural world in this poetry collection. But she also does this really awesome thing of linking it back to her individual experience. So her parenting experience, her experience with love, bodying both the wonder and abundance and largeness of the natural world, while also weaving in those mundane and really typical human experiences. I don't read a whole lot of poetry. I don't know a whole lot about how to read poetry, Mm -hmm. but I really like it because I think it pushes me more than reading fiction or nonfiction. It's definitely a slower read for me, even though it was a small book. And I didn't always feel like I got everything, but I really enjoyed thinking about them and and kind of working through the collection in kind of a slower and maybe more mindful way. So is it something where you'll just read one or two and then come back to it the next day? Yes, that's exactly how I did it. And I was just reading before bed, so I was already Mm -hmm. tired. I might have made it through more if I hadn't been getting ready to rest, and I might have gotten more out of it if I hadn't. But it was really comforting to just work through a poem or two and take what I could from it and then move on. I am also not a big poetry reader, and I don't know if I want to say it intimidates me, but I feel like it's a different experience, as you said, than reading fiction or nonfiction. So when I think of, oh, I want to read a book, poetry doesn't fit into that category for me. Right. So I feel like it would need to be a different time or activity almost in my mind in order for me to pick it up. Yeah, I think you do need to have different expectations picking up a poetry collection than picking up either fiction or nonfiction prose book. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I realized about reading poetry after finishing this book is that I really like hearing other people's takes on it Mm. and reading reviews in a way that I don't necessarily feel the need to do with fiction or nonfiction, which I know we've talked about before. Yes, But for completing my experience of reading this collection, I really loved reading several reviews on Goodreads. So it was a different experience, but a good one. And for that reason, I would recommend it. What have you been reading, Sarah? So my book is not as high-minded as a poetry collection about the natural world. Mine is From Twinkle with Love by Sandia Menon. And I talked about her first book last summer, which was When Dimple Met Rishi. Mm -hmm. And I loved that one. And I loved this one. (laughs) It is very YA. So with the language and the way it was structured, it was a lot of teen talk. Mm -hmm. She set up the book as the main character, Twinkle, writing in a diary. But she writes it as if she's writing letters to female directors because Mm. she's really interested in film. 
But then she's writing like it's a diary. So you get all of that teen lingo. And there's also things like seeing a text message exchange or notes passed in class between kids. Uh But it was amazing. (laughs) It was such a fast read. I think I read it in 24 hours. And there's still substance there. It's about her navigating changing friendships and popularity and romantic relationships and just trying to figure out her place in both her high school and the world at large. Hmm. I really loved in this book and in her previous one how likable her characters are. Mm. And I think in a way that's a little idealistic, I do not think most teens have it together quite as much as she portrays or (laughs) are as good of people as she portrays. But that makes it much more pleasant to read because do you really want to go back to reading about terrible people in high school? No. 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 (laughs) Sure don't. So there really wasn't much I didn't like. I felt like when I was reading it, I was smiling the whole time because it was just really fun and a nice contrast to the heavy nonfiction I've been reading. So it felt like this great break. I'm heading to the beach later this summer, Mm. and I am actually wondering if I can get both of her books because I think that they would be great sort of back-to-back beach reads. And I think I said this about her first book, too, that there is some depth there, even though it's such a light book. Right. In both books, the protagonist is the daughter of Indian immigrants, Mm. and so there's a lot of talk about race and gender and feminism and cultural differences and how teens navigate that. So it is more than YA romance, Mm -hmm. but it still feels so easy to get lost in and engaging. Nice. So today we're going to talk about how we made choices around stay-at-home parenting and our thoughts about our own choices and how that intersects with society's expectations. Let's start by talking about what model we had growing up. So growing up, my mom worked part-time and then was home with us the rest of the time. And honestly, that was really great for me. I have felt drawn to that model basically my whole life. That That's something I would like to try and make work for my family in the future. The other thing about thinking about staying home with kids is that I really objectively love childcare. Mm-hmm. I did that for work by choice many times in my life. So it was really appealing to me in thinking about having kids to be home at least part time with them. I had a similar model where my mom always worked at least part time. And when we were really little, I think that part time looked like 10 hours a week. Mm hmm. And then as we got older, more traditional halftime, and then in middle school, she started working full-time as well. And at that point, my dad really took over a lot of the after-school shift, and he was the one who was home with us after school. He was the one who cooked dinner when we were in later elementary and high school. Mm -hmm. But then we actually had kids, and we're having to make these decisions in real life, not just imagining what we would do. Yeah. What did those conversations look like between you and Andrew? So Andrew has always been open to having this conversation, which I'm really thankful for. But it has been a conversation that's been not always easy between us. And I would say is still ongoing. I mean, I think the biggest issue that comes up around staying home is that it presents financial challenges for us to not have two full-time incomes. Yes. Which he has said feels like it puts pressure on him. So this is something that we are definitely still working on. 
What about you and Neil? So Neil's mom also stayed home with the kids when they were little and then increased her work until she was working full time in high school. Mm -hmm. Very similar to my family. So I think he also had an assumption that we would have one parent stay at home. But we really went into the conversation not assuming that and talking about what we both really wanted and what we thought would work best for us in that moment. And he was very supportive of me wanting to stay home. But I will say that, like what you're talking about with Andrew, it has felt like this continuous conversation because Mm -hmm. things change so much as the kids get older in terms of what is it like to be home and is this working for everyone in the family system? And I specifically remember that while we were in Austin, there was a job that came up that if it had been available right when I graduated would have been my dream job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was considering applying for it and was talking to Neil about it. And he said, absolutely, I should apply. We should make that work. And it meant so much to me that he was willing to say that because it would have meant moving to a new place. It would have meant him leaving his dream job. It probably would have meant him taking over a lot of childcare while we were figuring out their transition until he could get a job. And it wasn't what I really wanted. That was my dream job right when I finished college. I wanted to keep being home. It wouldn't have been worth it to me to do that at that point. Right. But the fact that he was so willing to rehab the conversation and be completely open to restructuring what we're doing has made me feel so supported in what I am doing being at home. Yeah, that's awesome. So we talked some about this in our episode about balance, but how do you feel right now about the balance that you have between working and staying at home? Like I said in that episode, I definitely have times where I don't feel like I have the balance between working and staying home right, where it feels like too much work and like I can barely keep up with the home stuff and that I'm a subpar parent and on and on. But really, overall, I mostly just feel thankful that I can stay home and that I have work that I usually enjoy that I can do from home. I think that my situation is pretty unique in that I have people who are happy to pay me for the work that I do. They're happy to continue to pay me. Mm -hmm. Mostly I enjoy the work, even when I don't necessarily enjoy kind of the time pressure or the challenges of fitting it all in. And then In terms of sort of my month-to-month work that I have to do and the things that we have in place like preschool to help with childcare, it does feel like a good amount of everything. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I'm missing things with Plum. When she comes home from preschool, we're both happy that we've had that time away and then we can sort of move forward with being in our routine at home. And it's not too much work to do, but it's enough that... It is helpful financially and that I really do enjoy getting to talk to scientists about their work and interacting with my editor and with other science communicators. So I'm feeling pretty good. Good. What about you? How is your balance these days? In general, I also feel pretty good about where we are. I do feel like we're in a bit of a transition spot that I'll talk about more later, but I really value having a slow-paced life and just feeling like there's enough time for everything. And I can definitely imagine myself having made different choices and being really happy with that. If I had known exactly what I wanted to do when I finished grad school and had an amazing job that I started and didn't want to leave, I could see us being very happy being a two-parent working household. Mm -hmm. 
But in general, I am not somebody who is particularly ambitious when it comes to having a career. Mm. And I feel like that's a little bit taboo to say, but I just really have no desire to climb the career ladder and feel really content with where we are. I think it is really common to feel bad about not having aspirations career-wise. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's really common to not have aspirations career-wise. I think that we put so much pressure on ourselves and on our culture to work, 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 dream job, and that's fine to not have aspirations. And that it defines who you are, that there's this idea that what you do is who you are and how you're making your mark in the world. So if you're not doing it, then it's a waste. Right. And I think you and I have both had experiences where people don't know what to say when you say you are a stay-at-home parent in a lot of social circles, that the conversation seems like it comes to a dead halt. Mm -hmm. Or you end up having very awkward interactions after that around them trying to justify what you're doing to make themselves feel like they're not being awkward. It's all very strange. Absolutely. Because that's such a common question. What do you do? Mm -hmm. And if you are a well-educated woman in our society... Or person in general, right? I think person in general, but I feel like there is this extra emphasis on being a liberated feminist woman Mm. making use of your education that men who stay at home, I think, get different judgments. But I feel like there is this feeling of failing the collective... Feminist cause. Yes, Yeah. I mean, like you said, what do you do is such a pervasive conversation starter that when I was mostly home with Plum and not doing a whole lot of outside work, or even when I was doing childcare as my outside work, I would tell people that, you know, people, especially childless people that I don't know well. And it is a conversation killer. Beyond what do you do, they don't know how to interact. Mm -hmm. Or it's such a conversational habit that people really kind of flounder with the next thing. If you say, oh, I stay home with my daughter, then maybe if they are sort of on top of it, then they'll ask you some about your kid. Mm -hmm. But then the conversation diverts to your kid, right? Then it's no longer about you. Yeah, You're just this vessel of maternity or whatever. Or the follow-up question is, what did you do before? Right. Because people feel this need to be able to peg you into a box related to your career. Yeah. It's interesting. And I mean, I even find myself still to other parents that I meet like, oh, so are you home with your kid or Hmm. doing something else? So I'm still doing it. I'm still asking them about what they do, even though I have seen how problematic it can be from the receiving end of that. Yeah. That's a hard one that I am still working on. And I think I ask similar questions, too. I think my new phrasing has been, what do you do around town? (laughs) Or what do you do here in town? Because I think that leaves it open to, oh, I stay home with my kids. Right. Or I'm working, that it's not presuming one way or the other that, oh, you definitely have a job or, oh, you definitely are staying home, but you are doing something in this place where we live, regardless of what it is. I like that because that feels like it could be like, oh, I do yoga. Yeah. You know, it could be something not tied to career or parenting. Right. You could give a self-care answer. Mm -hmm. I love drinking champagne around here. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for asking. I would love to know if listeners have other ideas for when you're first meeting somebody about good ways to interact that isn't presuming something about their work or parenting. Yeah. So we've already kind of gotten into some of these societal narratives and how we do and have interacted with them. 
But what are some other ones that you have felt so far? So another thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, aside from the whole question of is what you do who you are and how do we value people when they aren't fitting into our idea of meaningful work, Mm -hmm. which is sort of ridiculous in itself. But what I've been thinking about a lot are the financial ramifications of staying home. So because it has been a big conversation in our family, I've been thinking a lot about it. But I've also been thinking about the bigger societal perceptions around that. And how for many families, having two full-time incomes is necessary. And that for us, like you've said, I'm really thankful that that is not a necessity for us, that we are making it work. But also that there's this extra piece that it has made me really pay attention to what I need and don't need Mm -hmm. and to what I think I need because someone else is telling me that and what I really need because that's a value that I hold. The thing that this comes up with most often is paying for things for Plum. And we've talked about this before about Mm -hmm. how stay-at-home parenting can become this activities director kind of position (laughs) where you are scheduling all the things. And a lot of those things include paying for classes. And with less income, that's something that is not always a financial priority for us. But I love how it has kind of made me think about whether that's really necessary in the life of our family or not. I think similarly, I became really drawn to minimalism when I became a parent. Mm. Going through those questions of what are our values and does the life we lead reflect those values? And it's been a really clarifying exercise for me to hear other stories of families who are issuing some of those material expectations about what it looks like to be a middle-class family Mm. in the United States raising Mm -hmm. young children and finding their own path. I think it's given me a lot of permission to know that we're doing what we're doing for us and to be making choices that are right for our family and that do reflect the values that we hold. And that's not to say that people making different choices have better or worse values, just that they're different and that that's great. I also think the financial ramifications piece is really interesting because it isn't just while we're at home, but obviously my earning potential is greatly diminished over the course of my lifetime from stepping out of the workforce for these years. Right. And I know that is true, but we've also come to a place where that's okay, that the end goal of my life is also not to reach a certain income generation level Mm -hmm. or to reach a certain mark that we are making it work with the money that we have and that we're comfortable with that. And that gives us the freedom to make different choices. But I do think we have to acknowledge that it isn't just this choice for these few years, that it really is a long-term choice our family is making to accept a lower income level. Yeah. One thing I've really struggled with in the choices that our family has made is that we feel really comfortable, but I'm very aware of how it looks from the outside Mm. and that I feel like we're very progressive, feminist, thoughtful people, Mm -hmm. but we are in these very normative gender roles with the male being the primary breadwinner and me primarily staying home. I know that's right for us, but what are we teaching our children through Mm. that model? Yep. I think part of what we're teaching our children is that we made and will continue to make thoughtful choices about worked for our family unit. Yeah. But I don't think we can ignore what they're learning by observing mm-hmm. about gender roles through the choices we've made. Yeah. 
that's a hard thing because you also hope that you're raising thoughtful kids that eventually will get the subtlety of it. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot of black and white for kids. Yes. The gray areas are a little bit harder to conceptualize. Mm -hmm. And so it is this really challenging thing of feeling comfortable in your decision and realizing that it is the right thing, but then also having all these questions about how it's going to look not just to people outside your family, Mm -hmm. because, I mean, I have those questions too, but also within your family. And that's one thing that makes me really thankful that so many families do make different choices than we make and that there are so many right choices for different people. Mm -hmm. Because I want my kids to see the whole spectrum of options available to them. And if everyone made the same choice we did, they wouldn't have that. Absolutely. Another phrase that I hear used a lot and that I know I have used in the past as well, because I feel like it's one of these things that you're expected to say as a stay-at-home parent, is that I'm missing intellectual stimulation in my life or that I wish I was using my brain more (laughs) or that you need to have a side project in order to fulfill that aspect of your life that has been lacking to that point. And I am sure I have said that because it does ease some of those awkward conversations about what you do. Yes. Oh, I'm a stay-at-home parent, but I have two podcasts on the side. Right. It's so great to have a creative project I can work on that's outside of my children. Because the idea (laughs) is that you have to have something defining you outside of your family or you're lacking in some major way. And I find that so frustrating, even though I have been guilty of participating in it. (laughs) Yeah. Because I do use my brain. I don't feel like my life is lacking in intellectual stimulation. I read the news and talk about it with friends and family. I read books on a regular basis that engage my mind. I think parenting is a really intellectually challenging activity. Yes. Also, the corollary is that work for pay is necessarily intellectually stimulating, which not all jobs are. Yes. Many jobs are not. I actually think it's really rare for people to be in a job that is fulfilling and challenges them and they find engaging on a regular basis. I think there's a lot of monotony in life in general, not just related to being a stay-at-home parent. Mm -hmm. So my plea to the world is to stop saying that parents who stay at home with their children do not use their brains or are lacking in intellectual stimulation. Yeah. At the same time, I also want to acknowledge that that is a real thing people can feel. So I'm not trying to say that you're wrong if you feel like you do want something outside of that or love having part-time work or are so glad to have a side project. But I think the idea that you have to have that feeds into this idea of what we do outside of the home is what defines us as humans. Something that feels really related to me is this idea of wasting a degree. Mm, mm -hmm. So as someone with an advanced degree, this is an opinion that I have encountered before. So wasting a degree or wasting your intellect. Yes, I have also encountered this. By staying home or even by taking a job that is not a high intellectual type job. Mm -hmm. And I find this really problematic as well. And I agree with you on all the things, both that childcare can be extremely intellectually demanding (laughs) and that it's okay to not want to do that all the time, even if you have the degree or if you don't have the degree, but you enjoyed it one time, it's okay to not want to do it now. There is a lot of pressure to 
achieve your full potential Mm -hmm. and not quote unquote waste yourself. And I just find that language really problematic that we can be doing something meaningful with our lives or not doing something meaningful with our lives and we still have value, right? Regardless of whatever it is that we're doing or not doing. And I think that's also tied to not just what we do is who we are, but also how much money we make is some sort of indicator of how successful we are in the world and in society. And how much value you bring to your family and the world. Yes. And that is one thing I have just really appreciated the way that we have set up our house is that I have never felt like I am contributing less to our household than Neil is, even though he is contributing the income feels like we are in this partnership and that we both really appreciate and value what the other person is bringing to the table and that I have never felt diminished in any way by the lack of income that I am currently generating because I know that Neil sees the value in the work that I am doing and sees the ways in which it's contributing. And I don't always feel that outside of the bubble of our household. Yeah, I think it's this bigger thing of all work that has been traditionally done by women is valued less highly than that that has been traditionally done by men. Yes. Even in a lot of feminism, there's this idea that if you're making the choice to stay home rather than making the choice to take on a traditionally male career-focused trajectory for your life, that you're less of a feminist. Mm -hmm. And I mean, to me, that blames the women making those choices rather than turning the lens on society when it's really the fault of society that child caring and other caretaking and home related things that have been done traditionally by women are not elevated as much as traditionally male things. And to me, that's the disconnect. Not that this work isn't valuable, though I think lots of people don't value it, but it's not the fault of the person choosing it. It's the fault of society that doesn't believe that it is. Right. And I think that extends to this idea of masculine traits and being masculine being more valued as a whole in society. Mm -hmm. Because when HP expresses a more feminine side or is more sensitive or interested in things that are feminine, That is not looked upon favorably, where when E is interested in things that are traditionally male or connected to boys, that is praised as being a strong girl, Mm -hmm. where for HP, it's being a weak boy. And I think that just continues and grows into these other life decisions later. Yeah. And those language differences that you've identified are societally ingrained. Mm -hmm. We can't get away from it. Yes. So it's felt really good to vent about the frustrations that I feel often with the way society views these choices that women make. I also want to acknowledge that I know it goes both ways, that the grass is not greener for women in the workforce and that they feel equally frustrating but different pressures Mm -hmm. than parents who choose to stay at home. Absolutely. And that that's such a hard place to be. Yes, Especially when there is so much pressure to not waste your intellect Mm -hmm. as a stay-at-home parent. But there's also pressure, especially on moms, of why are you leaving your kid to go to work? Yes. And I hate that for everybody. Agreed. Well, that's a lot about our thoughts about society as a whole as it relates to this conversation. Let's come back to our own choices and where we see that going in the future as our kids get older. I am looking forward to being able to do more writing or workshops or other income generating projects 
as Plum gradually has more time away from the house. At this point, I don't see myself getting a traditional job with banker's hours again because I so cherish the flexibility and space of being my own boss. And that goes for things at home, but also just the freedom of being a working person. I love not having to report, except when I decide that I want to report. Mm -hmm. I love that I'm completely in control of accepting assignments or teaching a class or whatever. It's really nice to have that autonomy and a real privilege. I could see that changing, especially as the life of our family changes, and I'm open to that, but that's where I am right now. As I hinted earlier, I feel like we're entering this transition phase where HP is in school full-time, E still has two more years, but when both kids are in school, something different will happen. Mm. So I think I'm still working through what that will look like and what would bring me the most joy while still being able to hold on to that flexibility and that open space and just that slower-paced life that is a huge value to our family of not feeling too busy and like things are so rushed. Yeah. Well, I think that is what we have to say today about stay-at-home parenting, working, and how we've come to those choices and feel about the choices that we've made. We would love to hear from listeners about what that process looked like in your family and how you feel and relate to the societal pressures around that question. Let's move on to what we've been eating. So I made a mushroom quiche last night, and it is from the cookbook How to Cook Everything Vegetarian by Mark Bittman. Hmm. And I love how flexible it is that that cookbook in general, when you look up something, it's here's the basic recipe and here's how you can change it. Mm. And it always has lots of variations, but gives you a lot of the ratios that you need to make it a success. Mm -hmm. So I also use the crust recipe from that book. And I always have to make one and a half of the recipe. I guess I'm just not very good at rolling it out in an even way to make it fit in the pie pan. Hmm. Or maybe I eat too much of the dough. Hard to say which is accurate. <laughs> Do you have a deep dish pie pan? I have one deep dish one, but then I just used a regular one the last time. And it still needs a one and a half. Well, It does. And then when I pre-bake it, I often find that it sometimes slides down a little bit. And then you need to do some of the extra around. Yep. So I did the crust, and then the basic part of the recipe is six eggs, two cups of milk or cream, and then I think it's two cups of whatever filling you're using. So we just did mushrooms last night, and then pour the egg mixture on top of that, bake it. I find quiche to be one of those things that I actually enjoy eating eggs the next day, where some things kind of freak me out to have eggs, mm. not when they're fresh, but I really love cold quiche in the morning. What have you been eating? I've been eating brie and turkey sandwiches. Mm. And we buy a really yummy focaccia bread from our food co-op. They come in little sandwich-sized pieces, so we slice them and then put the brie on, put the turkey on, and then just put under the broiler mm -hmm. for like five minutes till the brie melts and the bread gets a little toasty. Pull them out. Put either cherry preserves or roasted garlic aioli on them. Sometimes a green too, like arugula can be good. Mosh, which is, you know, that small sort of nutty flavored spinach-like green is really yum on these two. What I love about this is that it's really fast. If I'm like, oh my gosh, it's almost time for dinner and I haven't done anything. If we have the stuff for this, I can just pull it out and do it. Do you use turkey just from the deli? Yeah, that's what I've been doing lately. 
I've also in the past used leftover turkey from Thanksgiving. Mm, These are really good at Thanksgiving if you have cranberry sauce, Mm. but mostly deli turkey just because that's easy to get. Well, you know how I feel about good cheese in all the places, including sandwiches. (laughs) (laughs) That's all for this episode of Friendlier. It's been great talking with you, Sarah, and with all of you listeners. You can find us on our website, friendlierpodcast.com on Instagram at friendlierpodcast or email us friendlierpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, may your books be engaging, your food delicious, and your conversations friendly. (laughs) (laughs) What are we going to talk about?